This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 15. Or was it debris? It was the prettiest wedding ever seen in Woods County. So the Woodridge Centennial reported. And the prettiest thing in the wedding was Thorn, which the Centennial did not report. From the moment Judith saw her in the tulle dress, she realized it had been a mistake to dress Thorn up. With her curls caught in a band of pink ribbon and a little flower basket in her arm, she looked like one of her own roses. No doubt it was her old training in stagecraft that taught her to walk with that slow-poised grace. But as she moved down the stairs ahead of the bride, the eyes of the guests fastened on the flower girl and went no further. Judith was in an ill frame of mind by the time she reached the altar. Then she saw Richard, looking handsomer than ever in a new black broadcloth suit, and her annoyance was forgotten in the thrill of her achievement. The ritual so tediously rehearsed proceeded without a hitch. The children behaved impeccably. The rings were not dropped. The minister coughed only twice. The solemn hush that filled the rooms lingered even after the final words were spoken. Then it was shattered, startlingly, by the shrill high voice of old age. They're standing right on the spot where old Abigail was laid out. The speaker was old Judge Shane, a local patriarch, stone deaf and embarrassingly given to thinking out loud. For a shocked second, the incident put a slight damper on the newly made marriage. Then John Barclay's hands upon the piano plunged into the Mendelssohn March, and suddenly it was the merriest gathering imaginable. Perhaps it was because Lucius Goff took hold, and he was slightly exhilarated. Perhaps the old judge's soliloquizing had made everyone a bit hysterical. Perhaps, as Ellen Barclay said afterwards, it was a relief to find you could laugh and cut up again at the Tomlinsons, after all those years of having to mind your P's and Q's on account of Abigail. Whatever the cause, there had never been seen so much backslapping and handshaking and kissing of girls, old and young. Anne Tomlinson, looking sedately festive in grey poplin, stood in the dining room with Dr. Caxton and watched the loaded table swept clean again and again by the onslaughts made upon it. Baked hams, fried chickens, cakes and pies and jellies disappeared as though a swarm of locusts had passed over. As fast as they had vanished, replenishments came through the covered passage from Millie's inexhaustible kitchen, borne by Cousin Ludie and Henry Shook's wife, who was helping out. The preacher was heard to sigh. Oh, it's discouraging to see so many good things before you when you've already had more than you should eat. 
Mr. Jamison's popularity with the ladies put him in a fair way to rival Jesse Moffat as a trencherman. Anne's eyes met the doctor's and they both smiled. These two understood each other. They belonged to the same generation. He had been her husband's friend. She was not afraid to let him see behind her smile, her mind's unease regarding this marriage. You've set a new goal for local society tonight, Anne. I'm afraid that was not what I was aiming at, Doctor. You don't feel right about this wedding, do you? I wish Richard had waited longer. I shouldn't worry on that score. Considering the life Abigail led him, I think six months mourning was too damn good for her. I don't mean on Abigail's account. Though, considering Otis Hughes's sharp tongue, I think it would have been wiser. But it's Richard I'm thinking of. He's never had a chance to be a bachelor. We married him off so soon. Every young man needs a little time of freedom. And now, just six months after his release from... She looked at him with eyes suddenly moist. You know how it was. He said fervently. God knows I do. And then they both were silent. It won't be like this all the time, he went on. Richard's getting a healthy wife, one who, if I'm any judge, has plenty to offer a husband. You must remember he's human, Anne. He added bluntly. He needs a woman. He needs love, said Richard's mother. Bah, there's no such thing, scoffed the old cynic. From somewhere, John Barclay's violin had appeared, and Lucius Goff had organized a Virginia wheel. Hearing the rhythm of tapping feet and stringed music, Anne Tomlinson glanced anxiously at the minister, but Mr. Jameson was still surrounded by attentive ladies, bent on giving him indigestion, and apparently oblivious of the turn the festivities have taken. suppose I should go in and stop them, Anne murmured dubiously. You'll do no such thing. Nevertheless, she hurried down the hall, still doubtful of the propriety of Turpishore and theology consorting. The doctor followed, snorting at her heels. The dance was in full swing. Every man, young enough to twirl and sashay, had captured a partner and was cutting as lively a figure as Sunday breeches and tight shoes would permit. 
the voluminous skirts of the ladies dipped and twirled. It was a pretty sight. Eyes sparkled and cheeks glowed with the rollicking exercise. The doctor muttered in his companion's ear, Now if you can see anything wrong in that, I'll eat Jameson's coattails, swallow by swallow. Anne looked about for Richard. He was not dancing. He was standing apart, watching his bride dance with Lucius Goff. Judith danced well, if somewhat stiffly, in a far more ladylike fashion than the others, who were growing more boisterous with each round. Richard's eyes followed her, smiling as though he approved the way she danced. She caught his eye and, in the next turn of the reel, deposited her near him. Miss Anne heard her say, Please, Richard, come on, I'd much rather dance with you. I think I'd better wait till Mr. Jameson leaves. If you feel that way, I shouldn't be dancing either. But I want you to dance. I've no objection personally. It's just that, on Mother's account, there, it's your turn. Hurry or you'll miss Lucius. As she swung back into line to meet her partner, Dr. Caxton, muttered to Anne Tomlinson. See what you've done with your blue-stocking notions. Made a wallflower of the best dancer in the room. I know. He replied in answer to her surprised look. I saw him dance a shot itch one night at Henderson's. If you don't go and tell him to get into that reel, I'll go and push him in. But before she could take action, the two were cut off from Richard by a swarm of children who had been playing blind man's buff out of doors. They flung themselves onto Richard, clamoring that they wanted to dance too. A junior reel was organized, composed of the Turner boys and Nancy, the younger Barkley girls, Richard's two youngsters, and Thorne. In the scramble to pair off, Thorne was left without a partner. She seized Richard's hands and pulled him into the dance. He seemed to need no urging. was a sight worth watching the way those two danced together. Like many tall men, Richard was surprisingly light on his feet, and Thorne was like blown thistledown. Before long, everyone else had stopped dancing to watch them. Judith stopped dancing and stood quite still. She had taken Richard's refusal to dance with her as a subterfuge to hide his deficiency in the graceful art. She had not dreamed he could dance like that. Anne Tomlinson, catching a glimpse of her new daughter-in-law's face, recalled sharply the taste of a green persinium. As Thorne came tripping down the line, hands outstretched, that Richard might twirl her, Judith made a movement as swift as a darting hawk. She seized the hands before Richard could reach them and pulled Thorne out of the dance. You've stayed up long enough, Thorne. 
It's past your bedtime. You'd better go upstairs. The cold, harsh command was astounding. Fortunately, only a few people heard, for the room was crowded. But those few looked blank with consternation. Richard's own boys, six and seven, were staying up as late as their elders. Thorn, 14, was being sent to bed like a naughty child. Anne Tomlinson looked at her son. Richard's face was a stony mask. The doctor said softly, She shouldn't have done that. Anne whispered, What do you think he'll do? What can he do? Just married. He can't start arguing with the woman before he's even bedded her. Anne turned to look for Thorn. She had vanished. Judith was explaining sweetly, graciously to a room full of curious people that she was asking them all to stop dancing in deference to Mr. Jameson. I know Miss Anne doesn't think we're showing proper respect to the minister. Dr. Caxton mumbled in his beard. Something tells me Abigail was a housebroken angel compared to this filly. Fortunately, no one heard him. Richard's foot was as light on the stairs as it had been in the dance. No one heard him go up. He paused outside the door of his mother's room and listened to a sound of muffled sobbing within. He tried the door. It was locked. He called softly, but the sobs seemed to come from beneath a pillow. He dared not lift his voice. He would be heard downstairs before he was heard within the smothering feathers of his mother's bed. His heart ached for the unseen weeper. He blamed himself for the whole stupid business. He had committed an unpardonable error in dancing, even with the children, after refusing his bride. He tried generously to excuse Judith. She had reason to be hurt by his behavior. But she had no right to vent her feelings upon Thorn. His first shocked anger at Judith flamed again, frightening him by its venomance. This was no way to feel toward the wife he had just wedded. But she had no cause to reprimand the child in that shameful fashion before a room full of people. She had behaved exactly like Abigail. His thoughts retreated in panic haste from that comparison. He put his ear to the door. Mingled now with the sobbing was an audible refrain, repeated over and over. Oh, I wish I was dead. I just wish I was dead. Strangely, the forlorn little wail reassured rather than alarmed him. It was the moan of childhood wishing itself dead because of some injury, real or fancied. He smiled and drew his hand caressingly across the hard oak door. Then he turned and went back downstairs. He had not been missed. Judith was preparing to toss her bridal bouquet, and it was well that he came down when he did, or they would have passed on the stairs. He stood in the hall below and watched her lean from the rail of the landing and throw the flowers straight into the hands of the oldest Barkley girl, and he knew she had done it to please him. John Barclay was his friend, and it was fitting that one of his five daughters should receive the hopeful token. Judith was very tactful, but Richard, watching the giggling maidens, could think only of Thorn, who should have had a part in this pretty scene, sobbing her heart out upstairs. He went out onto the side porch where some of the more convivial spirits had been withdrawing at intervals all evening. It was as he expected. Something more potent than his mother's raspberry shrub was circulating. 
One of the Henderson boys had brought it from town. When he was invited to sample the fiery nectar, he did not refuse. He had to get rid of this feeling he had towards Judith. If he did not go to her tonight, a little drunk, he might not go to her at all. Judith sat before the mirror in the bird's-eye maple room, alone at last. It was the custom of the community. So she had learned for all the marriageable women to gather in the bridal chamber and help the bride disrobe. She had meekly submitted to this barbarous rite, but first she had locked the bureau drawer which hid her wedding nightgown. It was not the Virginia garment which the ladies of Woods County would be expecting. Now, rid of her unwelcome attendance, she quickly unbuttoned the thick muslin gown in which they had sheathed her. It was a handsome gown, hand-tucked and embroidered, a gift from Richard's sister in Kentucky. The sleeves came down to her wrists, the yoke was finished with a ruffle at the throat. She unfastened a dozen fine pearl buttons before the heavy nightdress fell to her feet. Unlocking the bureau drawer, she took out another gown and slipped it over her head. It was not quite transparent, but it might as well have been. She had made this gown herself in secret. No one, not even Cousin Ludie, had seen it. It fell about her body like trailing mist. She was trembling now, weak with apprehension. She had watched Richard's face following that little scene with Thorn. What had come over her to make her behave like that? All along, her every conscious effort had been to conciliate and win Thorne's friendship. And suddenly she had pounced on the child and ordered her off to bed, as though something had taken possession of her. Some malevolent imp, bent on causing her to do the one thing that would alienate Richard on her bridal night. It almost seemed as if some power outside herself had driven her to wreck her own happiness by behaving like Abigail. She gazed into the mirror fearfully as she whispered the name. It was the first time she had let herself think of Abigail since the day she met Miss Anne coming out of the downstairs bedroom. Now, cautiously, the thought of the dead woman brought no remainder of anything that had happened in that room only a vivid recollection of Abigail's jealous hatred of Thorn. That hatred had puzzled Judith once. It alarmed her now, because now she had felt it too. She had taken it onto herself this very night, as she had taken Abigail's husband. And it had caused her to behave as Abigail would have behaved. The thought was sinister. It was frightening. Of course she would never let it happen again. She would watch herself. She would explain to Richard that she had been momentarily ill or disturbed about the minister or something, if it was not too late. The house was quiet now. All the overnight guests had retired. Doors along the hall were closed. Voices and footsteps were silent. Still, he had not come to her. Was he too angry to come? If he did come, would he desire her? Judith's eyes grew haggard with waiting as the little clock on her dresser ticked away the minutes of her marriage night. A wind was rising. The branches of the locust trees lashed against her window like frantic arms beseeching entrance. The tall house moaned and sighed. 
A creaking sound moved up the stairs, and for a moment she knew a thrill of pure terror. Then she recognized it as a footstep moving slowly, reluctantly, toward her door. When the light tap sounded discreetly, she had no voice to answer the summons. A stricter, like a band, tightened about her throat. He came in softly and closed the door. They looked at each other in silence. She feared that the flush on his face was anger and that he had come to have it out with her. Then she saw that he had been drinking. He must have been exceedingly wroth with her, for he was not a drinking man. But if the drink had dulled his anger, she did not care. He came slowly across the room to her, stood looking down at the misty nightgown. Its charm was not wasted. Whatever had been on his mind when he entered was not there now. She smiled, half giddy with relief, and felt herself lifted in his arms. But even as she was born to the marriage bed, she had a strange conviction that he had not come to her like a bridegroom. He had come as his look betrayed like a guilty lover keeping a rendezvous. The big house groaned and creaked throughout the night. The wind whined at the windows and rapped at the doors. It stolen through the cracks and went sighing through the halls and passages. It was an increasingly chill and bitter wind, as though its mission was to blow summer and soft pleasure away. The household slept, but fitfully. There were numerous calls for more bed covers. Miss Anne going downstairs in the small hours to fetch a drink for the wakeful children encountered Cousin Ludie getting a snack from the kitchen in the hope that it might induce sleep. She hadn't closed her eyes all night, she declared. Miss Anne said that Thorn seemed the only one in her room able to sleep. And she's sleeping so heavily it frightened me. I thought when I lit my candle that she had stopped breathing. Mm, the witches show all right and tonight, said Cousin Ludie as they trudged back upstairs together. Miss Anne thought it would either rain or snow before morning. But toward morning, the fierce gale subsided. Suddenly, ominously, there was hushed stillness in the starless hour before dawn. Weary bed tossers turned on their sides and sank into heavy slumber. Miss Anne looked at Thorn and saw that color had crept back into her cheeks. The death-like stillness of her body had relaxed. She was warm and moist and breathing naturally. With a sigh of relief, Miss Anne lay down beside her and fell into restful slumber. In the bridal chamber, Judith, sleeping in her lover's arms, had a strange, disquieting dream. She thought she was standing before her old pupils in Timberley Schoolhouse. In the midst of hearing a class, she suddenly discovered that she had no clothes on. Her pupils were staring at her with horrible relish, and she saw that they were not the children of Timberley District. They were the silly women who had undressed her for her bridal bed. They had stolen her clothes and left her nothing, not even the misty nightgown. She demanded indignantly, Who did this? And they all giggled, pointing to a rear desk where someone hid behind a big atlas. She did it. They coursed. It's one of her tricks. It was Thorne's desk to which they pointed. 
Judith seized a riding whip and went down the aisle between the seats and cried in a choking voice, Come out from behind that atlas. You can't play tricks on me. Tell me what you did with my clothes or I'll flog you. But when she jerked the atlas away from the culprit, it was not Thorn who looked back at her. It was Abigail. She was dead, and they all knew she was dead, yet she moved among them as though she were living. Judith awoke from this dream in shuddering terror and clung to Richard. He did not waken, but his arms about her tightened automatically. Gradually, reality asserted itself. She had been the victim of a nightmare. But the macabre quality of the dream had been so particularly vivid that it was a long while before she slept. The sun rose clear and cold on a world of extreme untidiness. The lawn of Timberley looked as though it had been the playground of imps and demons. Trees and shrubs were stripped of leaves and their naked limbs were decked with debris from all over the neighborhood. Or was it debris? Jesse Moffat was late getting down that morning, owing to difficulty in finding his socks. He finally put his bare feet in his boots and came down to the kitchen to start the fire for the lavish breakfast, which must be prepared for the houseful of guests. When he ignited his fresh-laid fire, smoke belched into his face. He examined the drafts in the stove. They appeared to be some obstruction in the pipe. Smoke rapidly filled the low-ceilinged room. Millie, in her room over the kitchen, smelled smoke and yelled, Fire! As she came clattering down the back stairs, Jessie hushed her sternly. Do you want to scare everybody in the house? Nothing's on fire. The pipe stopped up. Here, give me a hand and we'll see what's blocking it. They took down a section of the stovepipe and found it stuffed with what appeared at first to be rags. Rags nothing, snorted Millie. Them somebody's clothes. And clothes there were. Wearing apparel of divers sorts stuffed the stovepipe far into the chimney. When Jesse pulled the last article out, he found, to his amazement, a handsome pair of new whipcord breeches. If those aren't the pants Lucius Golf was wearing last night, I'll eat my hat. Who do you suppose played a low-down, dirty trick like that? said Millie. Stuffing folks' best clothes in that old chimney. Looky there. Nice white shirts covered with soot. Coats and pants that'll never come clean. Jesse said. I looked for him to play pranks at this wedding, but spoiling good clothes is going too far. Well, Miss Anne sees this, said Millie. Somebody'll get a blistered behind. Maybe the fellow who did this is too old to blister, grinned Jessie. When Miss Anne appeared, she demanded sternly, Where are everyone's clothes? Someone sneaked through all the rooms last night and stole the clothing of our guests. Are you the culprit, Jessie Moffat? The hired man's denial was emphatic. Look what I found in the chimney. He pointed to the sooty clothes upon the floor. Anne Tomlinson was angrier than either of the two had ever seen her. A chivalry is one thing. A stupid joke like this is a disgrace to Tomlinson hospitality. If I find that any member of this household had a hand in it, he shall certainly hear from me. 
There was commotion now throughout the house. Doors were slamming, excited voices clamoring, feminine squeals and masculine growls were mingled in a rising chorus of indignation. Will Tomlinson charged down the back stairs in his nightshirt, demanding, Who hung my drawers at the top of the big locust tree? The little group in the kitchen stared at him blankly. At the top of the tree, said his mother. At the very tip of the topmost branch. If you don't believe me, go look. I saw them from my bedroom window. It's disgraceful. They all hurried outdoors. A weird spectacle greeted them. The trees and shrubs of Timberley bore strange foliage. It was as though the wind, which had stripped them of their autumn glory, had swept through the house collecting what it could to clothe their nakedness. Neckties, socks, and handkerchiefs fluttered from airy twigs. Waistcoats, pantaloons, and petticoats dangled grotesquely from boughs. Nor were they hung on lower limbs where they could be easily picked off. They were suspended from the highest and most inaccessible branches. No man or woman either could possibly have crawled up there, said a voice behind Miss Anne. It was Lucius Goff in night clothes and great coat, shivering with excitement. They were all coming down, guests and relatives, and fantastic little company of half-clad people wrapped in shawls and cloaks, for the morning air was crisp. Good nature predominated, though some were inquiring rather pointedly if anything of the Tomlinsons had been touched. The Tomlinsons, fortunately, had suffered as much as anyone. Miss Anne's stays decorated the pasture fence. Jessie Moffat's socks hung from the top of the windmill. Even the bride had not escaped. The bridal underclothing, which the women had neatly folded the night before, was draped over the tops of the tall poplars that guarded the family burial ground. Only one Tomlinson had been passed over by this angel, or demon, of mischief. Nothing belonging to Richard had been touched. Where's Thorn? someone asked suddenly. It was Judith. She had come down with Richard when the murmuring excitement spreading through the house had reached their room. She had not yet discovered her own loss when Richard, wrapped in a dressing gown, had stepped out into the hall to see what was happening. When he reported that someone had been playing jokes and everyone's clothes were missing, Judith had laughed. It all seemed part of the delirium of the night and the luxurious detachment of the morning. And then she glanced towards the chair where her own garments were laid, and she saw that the chair was empty. Springing from bed in queer panic, she searched frantically all over the room. Her clothes were gone. Richard laughed at her consternation. You don't think they'd pass up the bridal chamber? He teased. Nothing of yours is gone, said Judith. Her face was pale. She remembered her dream. But she followed Richard downstairs and listened to the talk of the others. The two cousins from Bridgeport, small, wiry lads and notorious practical jokers, were the favorite suspects. They in turn affirmed their belief that Richard was the culprit, since nothing of his had been touched. Lucius Goff retorted that Richard had something better to do last night than play pranks on his guests. And then he blushed at his own ribaldry when he saw Judith appear with her husband. 
Granted, someone was agile enough to climb up there, he said hastily. Granted, he was able to collect clothes from every room without waking anyone. I still don't see how he had the time to hang so many small articles in so many outlandish places. Working by himself, he couldn't, said Youngwell. But if he was twins, he might. And he cast a dark look at the cousins from Bridgeport. One of them said quickly, Nothing but a cat could have crawled that high. Or a child, amended his brother. At this implication, Miss Anne said emphatically, The children slept in my room. I was up and down with them all night. Not one of them could have left his bed without my knowing it. Thorn too? Asked Judith. Richard gave her a look which she pretended not to see, but other voices took up the question, where was Thorn? All who had seen her dance the night before suddenly recalled that her body had seemed as light as thistledown. Would those branches bear her weight? Anne Tomlinson put an end to all conjecture. Thorn didn't stir all night. I know because she slept with me, and she slept like the dead. Judith shivered. It was just a wedding prank. But it was so queerly, so damnably like her dream. It took the better part of the day to dislodge all of the pilfer clothing. Ladders were requisitioned. Boys with fishing poles were sent up into the trees. When the last piece of wearing apparel had been extricated from a willow down on the creek, the owner was heard to declare, By golly, there must have been a witch in that house last night. And that was what everyone was saying by the time the tale reached Woodridge. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Adam Abrams, and I'm from Vancouver, BC, Canada. I'm the voice of old Judge Shane, Tom Stickney, and Jimmy Turner. You can find me at adamabrams.com. That's adamabrams.com. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Eva Eames, or some will know me as V. Passmore. Eva is my pseudonym, and I'm an audiobook narrator and producer. I am also a voiceover talent. <laughs> but seriously, I work in a professionally built studio here in my home in Wakefield, Quebec, a little town outside of Ottawa, Ontario, the capital of Canada. Most who know me know I'm sort of a Jane of all trades. I have so much fun with so many things. <laughs> Let me see, I'm an aspiring author, I'm a painter, I'm a costumer, I love modeling and photography, a headdress and hat maker, I'm even an avid steampunk. But I think one of my biggest passions is being in the booth here with you, creating characters and bringing them alive. 
Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. Hello, my name is David Boisvert. I'm a musician who currently resides in the Nashville, Tennessee area. I'm a saxophonist, keyboardist, and vocalist for three bands that play in and around Nashville, as well as the Southeast U.S., and have session recorded for a variety of local artists. It was my pleasure to record the songs Rock of Ages and Praise God From Whom All Blessings Flow on piano. I performed the character Lucius Goth, as well as Miscellaneous Man, in the final episode. I'm pleased to say that Valerie is my cousin, and I'm so proud of her for producing Valerie's Variety podcast, as well as her audiobooks. I'm grateful to be a part of this project, and I hope you have enjoyed listening as much as I have. Hi, my name is Gerard Odell from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me where I co-host with my friend Frankie on the ever-trending story podcast. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yes. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Editing, mixing, and additional voices by James Seabrook at Two Bodies of Water Productions. Follow our hosts on Twitter at Two Bodies of Water. You got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com and on my Instagram, at kmorgan with two A's. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mom. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF. Not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hi, my name is Peggy Davis, and I'm the voice of Millie. I'm a retired teacher. My husband and I just moved from California to Missouri a few weeks ago, and we're still in the process of finding a home and trying to get settled in. You can find me on Facebook as Peggy Davis Franco. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi there, my name is Sam Sprunger, and I am currently in Indiana, and I am playing the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath, called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. She began with lesser changes. You know, dear, I think we should get rid of that old clock. It takes more time, Judith, to serve the meal the way you suggest. The men are always in a hurry at noon. How would you like to try it out at the evening meal? You must remember, Richard, that Thorne went to bed that night very angry at me. This was the first time Judith had alluded to the incident. Abigail was a great one to hoard silver. He went on. Would you believe it? Her purse was filled with quarters and dimes, besides four silver dollars and a 50-cent piece.
Credit Note, The Wedding March Song by Richard Thripp. Credit to Richard for allowing us to use this song for the Project DF podcast. It's such a familiar wedding song for Here Comes the Bride. You can find Richard Tripp, PhD, on YouTube at thripp.com. Thanks, Richard. Credit note for Ode to Joy by Cooper Canal, a no-copyright free download music that I used to give patronage to John Barclay's love for his violin. This song almost brings me to tears every time I play it. I hope it has the same effect on you. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book, the audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but we're unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.